What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. Hi friends, just a quick one. Today's episode is one that warrants sharing and highlighting given how prevalent small intestinal bacterial overgrowth or SIBO is becoming. Our guest today is Professor Dr. Stefan Vavrika, a well-known and respected gastroenterologist here in Switzerland. He is a professor and practitioner of gastroenterology and hepatology with a focus on chronic inflammatory bowel diseases. He's actually one of the gastroenterologists we work with here in Zurich, Switzerland. Dr. Vavrika has an impressive history working in this field from being the head of department of gastroenterology and hepatology in Trimli Hospital. He has also held numerous post doctorate positions, including Chief Resident and Research Fellow of the Gastroenterology Division at the University Hospital in Zurich, as well as a Chief Resident of the Division of Gastroenterology at the University Hospital in Basel. He works closely with different national and international research groups on projects related to inflammatory bowel disease. I hope you enjoy our chat today with Dr. Vavrika as we go through everything you need to know about SIBO. Right, Stefan, once again, thank you very, very much for joining us on today's episode. And as we do with our guests, I want to kick off today's episode with a few icebreakers so we get to know you a little bit better. So my first question to you is, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? Oh my God, if I had known that you will ask me something like that. So um, thank you for inviting me, nevertheless, but um, that's a difficult question. So I think I would go for probably my favorite vegetable, which is broccoli. And um, I like broccoli very much because you can do it like in many different ways. So you can like fry it or, or cook it or boil it. And I like the texture and the flavor of broccoli. So I think yeah. I would probably go for a broccoli. And apart from that, it is it has extremely a lot of vitamins and minerals and it's healthy. It even influences your intestinal flora. And I think I would probably go for broccoli. This is a very dietitian approved answer. I think my dad, dad, what did you choose? You chose okra. Okra, yeah, because it has got a lot of benefits <laughs> for diabetes, uh, loss of weight, and a lot of minerals and vitamins. So, mm-hmm. Next question is, if you had to choose one food item to eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? Um, so my mother is making a special cake, which is like a poppy seed crumble cake. And I think oh, I would... Sounds delicious. Uh, I think I will then look really terrible with a BMI of 40. <laughs> but um, that would definitely be the thing which I would eat t- till the end of my days. But but again, this is, I mean, this is something that we tell our clients. Food is not just about nourishment, but food also revokes these feelings and emotions and 
and be nostalgic too. So that is a very good answer. And our last question is, what is one thing that people may not know about you? So what a lot of people know is that my kids, they are rowers. So they, all three of them, they are rowing and quite competitively. Yeah. And um, the thing which people don't know is that I now started rowing. And I must say, this oh, is, wow. it's a really great sport. I really like it. So being like in the morning on the Lake of Zurich at five or six o'clock in the morning, I think there is nothing better to have than just these uh, emotions and feelings which you have on the lake in the morning. Oh, that's fantastic. I've I've only rowed once or twice. Dad, have you rowed before? In When I was young in Alexandria, it's not the classical rowing. It's just a piece of nice wood and with two only, <laughs> not not uh, proper rowing, you know. But it's, mm-hmm. it's a great sport because you can move each and single muscle of your body. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a good, uh, good sport. But it's too late for me. Well, no, actually, it's, it's never too late. I mean, you're not that much older than I am, right? So, <laughs> so you could start. And they are even thing like for for people over 60 to start yeah. rowing, at least in Zurich. So you should move to Zurich then. So <laughs> I think it's too quiet for him. Dad always complains how quiet it is. But no, I, as I said, I think rowing is, is a fantastic sport. But right. To get really into the subject matter of SIBO, now we are going to get into the details of it, but I actually wanted to ask maybe both of your opinions, but Stefan, I'm going to ask with, you know, I want to start with you. Why do you think SIBO was such a controversial diagnosis years ago, but even nowadays, it's still that controversy remains and some doctors are still refusing to test for it? I think the problem about SIBO is it is not life-threatening, right? So um, you, it's it's like not dangerous. It's more like a lifestyle problem. And a lot of um, doctors, they perceive it as being something like IBS-related. So for a lot of doctors, it's not a real disease. But this has changed, by the way. So since a few weeks, it even has a new ICD-10 code. And we have now ICD-10 codes for SIBO, EMO, and CIFO. And I think that's already telling us something that it is a disease and that it's not just a lifestyle change. I think the second problem is the diagnosis. We don't have really good ways of how to diagnose. And the third one is we don't have really excellent therapies. We try to do it like we try to treat SIBO with antibiotic therapies which is a little bit like treating um, a small war with with a nuclear weapon. But um, in the end, a lot of patients come back. They recur, they have uh, problems again, and and we don't know what to do with those patients. So I think it's it's like uh, three different things. So it's not perceived as a disease. We don't know how to diagnose, and we don't know how to treat it properly. Dad, do you agree? Again, it's nice to get two different gastroenterologists. Yeah, I think 100%. And just emphasize about the point of the diagnosis, because still now we don't have universal and applied gold standard method for diagnosis of SIBO. That's the problem. So, and the other two are valid as well. No, I definitely agree with that. And it's funny you mentioned, Stefan, with like the the recurrence. So from my understanding, it actually takes anywhere between two to five years to completely, I'm not going to say eradicate SIBO, but to get over it. Is that the average kind of timeline that you see as well? I didn't until a couple of months ago. 
So I was a little bit more optimistic about treatment of SIBO. So I always told my patients, so we have like one antibiotic therapy. If this is not working, we will use the second one. And then I will refer you to a dietitian who is specialized in SIBO. And this person will then discuss with you the diet and perhaps other preparations such as oregano oil or neem or berberine. But I must say, like within the last months, I have seen a lot of patients recurring and um, and they are then frustrated and they don't want a third or fourth antibiotic therapy. So I absolutely agree with you. Like we should talk about longer timelines of like healing it or getting over it, as you said, and not be too optimistic about the short term response. Yeah. No, I agree. I completely agree with that. With the recurrence of the symptoms. And sometimes you have to tell them, explain to them what's the mechanism of SIBO. It's not 100% infection like uh, pneumonia or something and just infection, give antibiotic course and it is just gone. We have to explain them to pathophysiology in simple words to explain to them that the recurrence is there. And we have to deal with them not only by antibiotics, by the lifestyle, as we can see later on the discussion. Stefan, how about you give us a definition, actually, of what is SIBO? So what is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? So SIBO is a disease in which the small bowel is abnormally colonized with a high number of microorganisms. And those microorganisms can be either bacteria or fungi. And um, we have like different uh, diagnoses how to do that. So if you might have a small number of bacteria within the small intestine, but if it's too high or if you have too many bacteria, if the colonization is too extensive, then you, you speak about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Yeah. And... Are there different, I mean, you know, people are now starting to uncover that there are different types of SIBO. Can you maybe, we don't have to go into great detail, but can you maybe highlight the ones that you predominantly see at clinic? I mean, like in general, you can define a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth in general, and then you can have like the hydrogen subtype, which is hydrogen SIBO. You can have the hydrogen sulfide subtype. You can have um, a small intestinal fungal overgrowth and you can have the intestinal methanogen overgrowth. So emo. Be yeah. really honest, I don't make that much this differentiation in my daily clinical practice. I speak okay. mainly about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Without the differentiation. So really just having that big cloud of, of SIBO. Dad, is it the same thing, let's say, in Dubai? Do you distinguish the different types of SIBO? No, we didn't talk about the types. But later on, we can see if there is any differentiation between uh, distal proximal SIBO or distal SIBO. This is really come to the, when we do the diagnosis or the hydrogen uh, breath test. But generally, we, we don't talk about special types for in, in a general practice. You just explain them about SIBO and then we go on. But I say different types per se. I think, you know, this is maybe a question for both of you. So just based on my research and just based on the type of clients that we've seen, if we had to look at the subtypes, let's say for dealing with hydrogen dominant SIBO. So maybe for our listeners that don't understand what that means. So basically the hydrogen dominant SIBO is a subtype where the predominant gas produced by this overgrowth of bacteria is hydrogen. So these bacteria ferment the carbohydrates and produce hydrogen as a, how do you say, a metabolic byproduct. Byproduct. Mm -hmm. Now, 
maybe Stefan, correct me if I'm wrong. Is hydrogen dominant SIBO associated, let's say, mainly with diarrhea, bloating, and absolutely and say, correct. gas? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Whereas the emotype is mainly associated with constipation. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is that the, I mean, previously it used to be methane dominant SIBO, but now I know it's called intestinal methanogenic overgrowth mm-hmm. because we're not dealing with bacterial overgrowth. So the mm-hmm. methane, so that's the gas that's produced by the specific archaea organisms that consume hydrogen produced by other bacteria. And that mm-hmm. will lead kind of that production of the methane can lead to a slowing of the intestinal motility and that causes the constipation and the bloating and and the the discomfort. My question, maybe again, both you and dad can answer this, but what are the common causes and risk factors associated with SIBO? Stefan, maybe you can go first and then dad, maybe you can add a bit more if you find any. Yeah, so what we see quite often in our patients is, so either you have like a motility disorder. So we see that like more often in patients with diabetes, with hypothyroidism, with uh, neuropathies, or even like rheumatological disease, such as connective tissue disease. You can have anatomic disorders. So you might have strictures. We see it quite a lot in Crohn's disease patients, in fistula or in celiac disease patient, or even in patients who have had um, like a bariatric surgery or gastric bypass surgery. And then I think a third risk factor besides motility and anatomic disorders is if you have like immune disorders. So you might have like acquired immunodeficiency syndrome or common variable immunodeficiency syndromes. And we see it in pancreatobiliary diseases, such as chronic pancreatitis, and in patients who don't produce a lot of acidity within the stomach. This can either be due to autoimmune gastritis, or it can be due to a proton pump inhibitor therapy. And this, I think, is the thing which I see most patients in. So a lot of patients are telling me they have had proton pump inhibitor therapy before. And this is, in my eyes, one of the main risk factors of developing SIBO. Yes, I agree, Sandra. This is most of the uh, causes of uh, SIBO. This gastroparesis as well as uh, an example of the mortality disorder. And we can add the uh, dysbiosis as well. Like irritable bowel syndrome. Exactly. So I think looking at the causes of dysbiosis that can cause a SIBO as a secondary. Mm. The other one is some some of the risk factors: the alcohol abuse. You know, because excessive alcohol consumption can damage the microbiome and leading to dysbiosis and damage the intestinal walls as well. So it might cause SIBO as well. So I think we covered most of the causes of SIBO. Uh, yeah. And I think I wanted to maybe add a quick note is, again, I don't know if it's anecdotal, but I think in the last year or so, quite a few of my clients that were diagnosed with SIBO had a long history of PPI use with these protein pump inhibitors. Stefan, can you, do you know, you know, can you explain maybe the reason why beyond protein pump inhibitors can increase your risk of SIBO? So usually everything which you eat is covered by bacteria, right? So you never eat sterile food. You always eat food which has bacteria on it. And the stomach is so acid, the acidity within the stomach is so high that every bacteria is killed. And if you now take proton pump inhibitors, then your stomach is not acid anymore. This means that the bacteria which you take up by your mouth are not killed within the stomach. 
And then they go into the small intestine and there they feel quite good. I mean, it's like being in a uterus, right? It's a cozy and warm and there is food which passes by all the time. So they start growing and growing. And um, if you have like the, the wrong composition or if you have too many bacteria within the small intestine, then you are calling that the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So I think it's really, you can just tell it by not being sterilized within the stomach because the acidity is not high. That's the reason why you why you see that. Yep, that's a good uh, explanation to yeah. our listeners. That's because now, we, have to, we have to have a good amount of acid to kill the bacteria. And this is this is the same thing as well when we patient with the uh, inflammatory bowel disease. We have to warn them about continuously taking the PPI, the proton pump inhibitor, because they might be liable to uh, infection as well. So we have to be careful with using PPI continuously for many reasons as well. And both of you, I mean, mentioned we quickly touched on the different types. What are the most common symptoms of SIBO? So the, the things which I hear most from my patients is postprandial bloating. So this bloating, yes. it usually comes after 20 minutes to half an hour to an hour after people eat, they all of a sudden feel bloated. Some of my female patients are telling me I feel as being pregnant and the, the air which is produced has either to get out of the mouth, so you start burping, or it gets out of the backside and then you start farting. And so this is like a problem of air and of bloating. That's like some what the most seen symptoms in patients. You can have, as you mentioned, diarrhea or constipation, depending on the type of SIBO. And interestingly, I also see a lot of other things. So I see, for example, a high folic acid level. I see a low vitamin B12 level. And a lot of patients also are telling me symptoms which are a little bit outside of the gastrointestinal tract. So they, they are telling me, I feel like uh, dizzy. I feel I have problems concentrating. I have trouble sleeping. I even feel depressed. So you also have a lot of like psychological problems which can be associated with SIBO and which go away when SIBO is treated properly. I agree with these symptoms as well. But let me ask you as well, Stephen, these symptoms are maybe uh, typical of irritable bowel syndrome as well. Do you ask patients some questions to differentiate a little bit between both without doing the... Yeah, that's, that's an excellent question. So, so what I don't hear that much from my IBS patients is the food dependency that much. And I don't hear that after 20 minutes to half an hour after they've eaten something, they have this bloating sensation. So I don't hear that that often from IBS patients. And I also think that a lot of my IBS patients in the end turn out to have um, SIBO. So this is something which overlaps quite a lot. And uh, I'm, I'm very conscious that this overlap can exist. And that's why I'm, I, I keep asking my patients and I keep looking for SIBO actively in my IBS patient population. If we are talking like about the other differential diagnosis also, apart from IBS, I think one of the most important differential diagnoses is uh, celiac disease. And as celiac disease is something which appears quite often, one in a hundred patients 
within a normal population is um, suffering from celiac disease, I think we should also exclude actively in those patients where we think they have SIBO, we should exclude actively celiac disease. And what I also do quite a lot is I do stool sample tests and I look for parasites, for parasites such as blastocystis hominis, and I also look for calprotectin within the stool samples. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah we've, we've discussed, I mean, for our listeners who are not familiar with these terms, you can just go visit season one because we've discussed calprotectin, we've discussed celiac disease as well. So there's uh, a lot that um, you can just go back and revisit. And I think I wanted to add one symptom, perhaps, Stefan, that's the uh, that postprandial feeling. The way my clients describe it is having a rock in the stomach. So I think every person in the last, let's say, couple of years, the most uh, common symptom that they describe is I feel like there's something, there's a rock in my stomach after I eat and that sensation of heaviness and the burping as well. These have been my personal red flags just to kind of keep in the back of my mind. Again, I, this is where, you know, both gastro, you know, both of you gastroenterologists come in. I cannot make that diagnosis. If we had to move to the diagnostics, where do we start? I usually, if I suspect SIBO, I tell my patients that I think it might be SIBO and I give them the choice. And the choice is, on one hand, you can either do the breath test, which is called lactulose breath test. And um, the other one is to have a gastroscopy. And within the gastroscopy, you take out the fluid of the small intestine. So you do an intestinal aspiration. And if you have too many bacteria within this intestinal aspiration, then you have the diagnosis of SIBO. So usually when patients come to my office, I give them the choice. Do you want to have a gastroscopy or do you want to have a lactose breath test? Then the first question which patients then ask is, which one is the better test? And I personally think the gastroscopy is a little bit more accurate. The good thing about the gastroscopy is you can also exclude other things. So you can take biopsies of the small intestine, you can exclude celiac disease, you can exclude parasitic infections, you can also take biopsies from the stomach and exclude helicobacter pylori infection of the stomach. But it's a little bit more invasive. And if you have SIBO a little bit lower down, let's say like in the middle or in the last third of the small intestine, you can miss it. On the other hand, the lactulose breath test only tells you SIBO yes or no. It's less invasive and it has perhaps a higher accuracy if you have SIBO in the middle or in the lower third of the small intestine. So I, that's the way how I, I explain it to my patients. I also explain to them that sometimes you have to combine both tests and then it's usually the patient who decides which test he is taking. Uh, what I see also sometimes especially in like internal medicine or family practitioners is that they, if they have like really, they think that the patient has SIBO, they just give them an antibiotic therapy. In my eyes, this can be done if you really think that the SIBO diagnosis is quite probable. On the other hand, a lot of my patients, they want to have the diagnosis before they are starting taking antibiotics. So there is no empirical treatment in SIBO. That's what I... I assume, yeah, you don't give empirical treatment for if you suspect SIBO. But there's two points I want to ask you, Stephen, about the endoscopy. It's, it's an invasive, and as you said, the endoscope goes to the second part of the genome. 
So is it some of the disadvantage of this? As you said, it doesn't go to the uh, ilium distal uh, part of the small bowel. So it's one of disadvantage, and the other one, the expense and the uh, expensive and invasive. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is a quick question for both of you. Does insurance cover for it if you do choose? If you're suspecting SIBO and you do choose the endoscopy. In Switzerland, both is covered. In Dubai, I have to say that he's got SIBO and he's got uh, esophageal reflux and he might gastritis and he might. So we have to, here we have to convince the uh, insurance for a lot of things. It's very difficult to get approval just straight away. And the other point is here in Dubai, I'm not doing lactulose. I'm doing the uh, glucose, which is, you know, it is very rapidly absorbed in the upper part of small intestine. So what do you think the disadvantage of or advantage and disadvantage of glucose versus lactulose? I think it's less accurate if you use glucose instead of lactulose. So lactulose is more specific for SIBO, whereas a glucose test can give you a lot of false positive and false negative results. So I would probably... If I had the choice, I would probably go more for lactulose than for glucose tests. But there is another point if the, you know, the glucose is rapid absorption, so it is less likely to reach the colon. Mm-hmm. It might be, uh, it would generate false positive result by feeding the large number of the bacteria. But So it might be advantage and might be disadvantage as well, isn't it? And it might be just my ignorance because I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I think it's it's a good point because even just looking at what the research is and looking at the breath test accuracies, I do know that lactulose is generally now the most favored because of the, basically the inaccuracies or the high risk of getting an inaccurate result with a glucose versus a lactulose testing. But again, I'm not the gastroenterologist. I just really look at what's being done, let's say, in Europe and Australia. And even in the Middle East, it's always interesting to see. But um, um, I'll try to change to ask the company to get us the lactulose instead of the glucose. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's a takeaway there. Yeah. And by the way, as well, what do you think? Because we test during this hydrogen breath test, we test for both, for lactose intolerance and for uh, yeah, that's the advantage. That could definitely be an advantage for the glucose test. Yeah, so we do the uh, make the patient drink lactose and glucose as well. And yeah. we got the, the lactose intolerance in 180 minutes and the SIBO 120 minutes. Once we have the, let's say, the, the diagnosis of SIBO, what are the various treatments? So how do you proceed, Stefan, with your patients? So... I think the optimal antibiotic therapy would be rifaximin. Problem about rifaximin is that it's not covered in Switzerland if you haven't used another cheaper antibiotic before. So the way how I do it is in a first round, I give my patients metronidazole. I usually give them two times 500 milligrams for 10 days. It's a little bit a low dose, but nevertheless, I give them that. And I would say about half of patients, they respond to that. The other half doesn't or has a recurrence. And in those patients, I ask the insurance company whether they would cover rifaximin therapy. Now, it's important that you use the right dose and the right length. So the studies have been done with three times 550 milligrams per day for 14 days, which is quite a high dose. So one needs to know that one of the most 
or at the least at least what I see, one of the most done treatment failures is that you don't use the right dose. So you need to have the right dose and the right length to use the rifaximin. And the studies have been done with three times 550 milligrams for 14 days. And then in those patients who don't respond or have a recurrence, then I send them to a dietitian. But a lot of patients, they already want a dietitian in the beginning. So it's a, like a combination therapy, diet and antibiotic therapy. Do you have any patients, like what do they tell you if you said, right, you know, the, it's antibiotic therapy and it's rifaximin or let's say zifaxan. How do you explain it to them? A lot of people are hesitant to take antibiotics nowadays. So rifaximin is an antibiotic which only stays within the intestine. So it's not taken up. So you see much less side effects, especially fungal infections and stuff like that. And I don't see that many side effects from rifaximin. Whereas in patients who take metronidazole, I would say one in three patients has some side effects like headache, nausea, vomiting. You shouldn't combine it with antibiotic therapies. Some of them even have like tingling within the fingers. So I've seen so many side effects of metronidazole. But nevertheless, in Switzerland at least, you need to have used another antibiotic therapy before you're allowed to give rifaximin. Oxyfoxan. Dad, is it the same thing in, in the UAE or in Dubai? Yes, but the problem in, in Dubai, we don't have the 550. We have 200 milligram tablets. So I give usually 400 three times a day. And usually, most of the time, I don't have any problem with the insurance. Once I write uh, bacterial overgrowth, uh, infectious colitis, they, it's approved by the insurance. Mm. So there's no problem. But it, I emphasize to the patient to get the 403 times for 14 days. And as you said, I explained to them that it is gut specific and the absorption is very little. So the uh, side effects will be very, very minimal. But some people get some side effects. If it is minimal, I usually tell them to carry on till it will go out. It will go off, especially in the few days to start with the treatment. Sometimes we get, we'll talk about this. Sometimes when you start treatment, we get some side effects which will die off later and then it will be okay. So uh, that's we, we I don't have many problem issues with the uh, insurance for this. But I, as you said, do you think it is okay if I give 400 three times a day, Stefan? So there is also a study which has been done with 1,200 milligram per day. So you're also safe. But we don't have the 200 milligram doses in uh, in Switzerland. We only have the 550 milligram doses. And that's why I keep telling my patients to take it three times and not three times 550 and with that, you have like a, high, a slightly higher dose than you're using. So you're using 1,200 and I'm using 1,550, but I think that's okay. How about uh, children? Do you ever use uh, rifaximin with children? I have used it. Usually uh, the insurance companies are, are more hesitant, but I have used it also in, not in really small kids, but I have used it in adolescents. So I have used it in, I think, in a, in a 13 and 14 year old boy and girl. Mm -hmm. With the same dose? I had the same dose, I must admit. Okay, thank you. Now, I mean, my other question is probably, how about if it's, um, again, this is just based on the guidelines and what I personally know. If you are positive, the hydrogen 
let's say, dominant SIBO. Is the treatment still the same for intestinal methanogenic overgrowth with IMO, or do you start combining antibiotic therapy in that case? Yeah, you're right. So if you have, so in, in some patients, you, you can do, do also like special breath tests where you have the diagnosis of IMO. In those patients, the neomycin might also be a good idea. So you can combine rifaximine with neomycin. I've done that in a couple of patients. But as I said before, I don't make that much the difference between SIBO and IMO. And that's why I'm using more rifaximine and not so much the combination. My other question to you both is would be, apart from antibiotic treatment, there's a lot of talk about prokinetics because we're, you know, if we're dealing with a, you know, SIBO is a motility issue. Can you maybe, Stefan, explain what is a prokinetic and do we actually need it to help us with SIBO? So a prokinetic therapy is something which increases so-called motility within the intestinal tract. So I usually I explain my patients the whole gastrointestinal tract is a little bit like a toothpaste a tube. So you always have like to empty it from the upper part to the lower part. So you have like this, this motion, which is always like the, the motility within the gastrointestinal tract, which propulses forward everything which you are eating. Eating. And um, in some patients, especially in patients with uh, certain diseases, as I said before, such as uh, rheumatological diseases, amyloidosis, diabetes, hypothyroidism, this motility all of a sudden doesn't, is not present anymore. And everywhere where you have a stasis, meaning that the things which you are eating are not, not like, um, transport it anymore, then you have this option that that bacteria can start overgrowing. So there is the notion that if you start using in such patients a prokinetic therapy, something which increases the motility within the intestine, that this might be helpful. The problem is that there are not so many studies which have been done in that. I sometimes do it, especially in patients where I know that they have a, a prokinetic or a a motility disorder. So let's say I have a diabetic patient who has SIBO. In such patients, I also use prokinetics. I use, usually uh, use paspartine or, or motilium in such patients. But in other patients, I'm not using it that much. I don't know, how are you doing in Dubai? Yes, I think it's the same, uh, the same explanation. And sometimes if I don't use it as a routine, but as you said, if patient is diabetic or something, and sometimes patient with the main problem is bloating and uh, abdominal distension. So I usually try for one month or something as a prokinetic. The thing we use, we don't use, I don't use motilium, we use etopride, which is, uh, I think, less side effects. This is, but it is not routinely used in the uh, treatment of SIBO. Uh, that's in, okay. in from my side, yeah. Stephen, how about the, the probiotic in the SIBO? What's the role of it? I think that's a question for Sandra. <laughs> <laughs> not, so, not so much for me. I mean, everything related to food should be answered by, by Sandra, not by the two of us. I mean, no, look, I mean, this is also a question that I always get. And I think when we look at um, probiotic supplementation, it, you know, its effectiveness, 
is really not proven yet. We do not have enough clinical trials. But again, just looking at what probiotics do, and you know, again, just like in layman terms, I actually really stay off any probiotics during the treatment or during the symptoms phase because you don't want to add any additional bacteria at this point in time because we're dealing with an overgrowth. Now, we don't know if it's actually beneficial to probably provide a probiotic after antibiotic therapy and even after going a specific diet, which we can discuss in a minute. So when it really comes to probiotic therapy and SIBO, I don't think there's enough evidence there to support its use. I do not prescribe probiotics unless they've been quite restrictive with their diet. So this is when we want to replant the seeds a little bit just for maybe 12 weeks and then focus on feeding our own gut bugs to really work on that diversity. Then perhaps a a multi-strain probiotic can make sense for 12 weeks and then just getting them off of it. But I don't think it's routinely used, especially during that treatment time. We do not, Stefan, I don't know if you do prescribe probiotics during that time, but I do not recommend taking probiotics at that time. Yeah. No, I don't. I don't as well. But a lot of misuse of the probiotic is going on now because of the media, of course. Absolutely. Of course, because of social media and it's a multi-million dollar industry, especially with the supplementation industry. But speaking of lifestyle and, and diets, so do you routinely, I mean, Dad, do you routinely refer to a dietitian when it comes to your SIBO patients? We don't have the luxury of sending patients to a dietitian because it is not covered by the insurance. But I try to give them as much information as I can. And then I advise them to see a dietitian either in person or online. And sometimes I give them your name. (laughs) But uh, I hope I can. But usually we don't because I tell the patient, but it is not covered by the insurance. And it's a bit of expensive visits, maybe uh, 300, 400 hands per visit. And it is long and it it should be long process, two to three months advice and follow up. So they won't do it without the insurance cover. I have a lot of mutual patients, so I I do see them. (laughs) I mean, if we have just for our listeners to touch up on diet a little bit, and again, maybe both of you can can let me know if, if you agree with my approach or not, but I think there's a lot of talk about this whole FODMAP process or this low FODMAP diet with SIBO. Now, again, to our listeners, if you're not familiar with the FODMAP process, you can listen back to our episode in IBS where I discuss this in great detail. But FODMAPs, just as a snapshot, are these types of fermentable carbohydrates that are common in a ton of foods that we eat. And they can be quite problematic to a lot of people. Now, I think when it comes to SIBO, because it shares a lot of, let's say, similar symptoms to irritable bowel syndrome. So I think there was this theory of, hold on, can this FODMAP process, especially the low FODMAP diet, help in terms of, now we're not curing SIBO, but help in terms of symptom control. So in some patients, absolutely. And then the question mark here is, when do we actually introduce this FODMAP process or when do we have to eliminate it? So actually, I'm not, I never go on a strict elimination diet during the treatment phase of SIBO because generally the thought there is you want the the bacteria to still be active. You don't want to starve it yet so that you actually guarantee that you're killing it off with, with the antibiotic therapy. And then you might have a modified low FODMAP approach, which we've discussed in the past here before in the podcast. So specific eliminations, we're not going on a strict elimination, but just to reduce the amount of fermentation that's happening in the gut. So I think, again, from that FODMAP perspective, there's this big question mark. Again, there's really no conclusive evidence, just like I said, Stefan, even when it comes to treatments and diagnosis, I mean, even from a dietary perspective, 
I'm not going to say we're going in blind, but we, we're only uncovering a lot of research now. Now, as a dietitian, the other thing that I actually see with untreated SIBO or recurring SIBO, and again, maybe Stephanie can correct me if I'm wrong or even dad, but I've even, you mentioned that the symptoms sometimes are not just focused on the gut. They can be more systemic. So they can be neurological. They can be, let's say, um, fatigue, muscle aches. What I've noticed with some clients is that they can develop temporary food intolerances, like histamine intolerance, but it's completely reversed after therapy. Do you see that, Stefan, at all? When it comes to, again, histamine intolerance is a completely different you know, topic that I can talk about in detail, but have you ever... You know, looked at that at all. I must say, I, I see quite a lot of patients who think they have a histamine intolerance and in the end they have SIBO. So I absolutely okay. agree with you that some of my patients with possible intolerances in the end turn out to, to have SIBO. Yeah, I see that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's about correcting SIBO and that corrects the, the intolerance. And I think the reason there were, again, just based on what we know is if you do develop histamine intolerance, when in fact, you know, it's like a side effect of SIBO, I would say, it's because if there's this constant inflammation that's happening with the overgrowth, that also impacts the type of enzymes we produce, like diamine oxidase is one of these enzymes that we need to break down histamine. And if we don't start producing enough of it, perhaps there's this buildup. So that's a theory like, do we get a buildup of histamine due to this constant overgrowth that's happening that's causing these secondary inflammation? So I think, as I said, you definitely need to work with a team that's communicating together, you know, the gastroenterologist, the dietitian, quite closely, and they're all communicating together, not just, you know, how do you say, like a broken telephone line. The other thing that I would say from a dietary perspective, and then we can kind of move on to these lifestyle changes or maybe prevention strategies, I would say in terms of recurrence, especially if I'm dealing with IMO, so if the symptoms are constipation, it really comes down to doing everything that we can to address the constipation from a dietary and and lifestyle perspective. So this is how, you know, I always tell my clients, we need to kind of make sure that your bowel movements are regular and we keep the motility going from that perspective. Is there anything you'd like to add, either dad or Stefan, when it comes to diet at all as gastroenterologists? You start, Stefan, and then follow. (laughs) (laughs) So there is, I think, one thing. So we think low FODMAP diet might play an important role in such patients. Um, What also has been developed by the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center is the low fermentation diet, which is a little bit similar to a low FODMAP diet, but the idea is to avoid most fermentable carbohydrates, but not all of them. So opposed to FODMAP diet, where you try to avoid every carbohydrate or every fermentable carbohydrate, it's in this Cedars-Sinai Medical Center low fermentation diet, you only try to avoid the usual suspects. And this food mainly includes those that contain artificial sweeteners, lactose, exactly. fructose, and sugar alcohols. And I think that's also something which is important. So in some patients, they don't need like the full-blown low FODMAP exactly. diet, but it might be yes. a little bit like a modified low FODMAP diet, which is probably more appealing to the patient than having a really food low FODMAP diet. I completely yes. agree. I mean, this is why I said it's a modified. So we do not, I mean, what, what I've seen and also we look at the specific FODMAPs and a lot of the time it's really cutting out the sugar alcohols. Lactose is another one. 
And clients would notice or patients would notice a difference already. Um, so even just reducing the amount of fermentation, this is why I would say I, I don't think I actually go the full elimination. So strict A, I don't think it's sustainable and it's quite restrictive. And again, when it really comes to gut health at the end of the day, it's really about inclusion and not exclusion. So the less exclusion, the better. And this is why you'll notice that a lot of your patients might have tried some very, very strict elimination diets. And you do see that with SIBO too. I know there's like the specific carbohydrate diet, basically, that also claims that it heals all these different types of gut issues, even inflammatory bowel disease. But it's very high in, let's say, protein. And it's very, very restrictive when it cuts out all grains, all starchy vegetables, most legumes, all sugars. And again, I just, again, that level of restriction, you know, you have to also bear in mind a person's, you know, the psychological impact of food eliminations as well. So there's a lot of misinformation when it comes to these super, super restrictive diets. But if I had to, you know, just jump into, let's say, lifestyle changes and proactive measures. Stefan, can lifestyle strategies prevent SIBO? That's a really hard question. So <laughs> I think like if you look again at motility, it might be beneficial to have space meals of four to five hours apart to allow this uh, so-called MMC, which is like this uh, motility, to work better. So it might be a good idea to have like multiple small meals instead of one or two really big meals. The second thing is, I think, which is always good in such situations is if you have a practice mindful eating at mealtimes, if you chew the food thoroughly, because this then stimulates the digestive enzymes and this helps you in digesting your food better. And um, this doesn't give the bacteria that many um, food that they can produce the gas, which then gives you the symptoms. So I think it's a little bit that, like this mindfulness, the space in meals and the slow and thoroughly chewing process, which might help. But apart from that, I can't think of much lifestyle modifications which you can do. It's a little bit different if you have like an underlying disease. As I said in the beginning, yeah. so celiac disease patients have often also SIBO. Patients with Crohn's disease have also often SIBO. So if you in those patients, it's not so much lifestyle change, but treating the underlying uh, disease can also help in helping you with like managing your SIBO. Dad, is there anything else you'd like to add to, to yeah, that? That's Are there true, any other no? Yeah, the lifestyle is very it's important for any disease, including SIBO as well. And as Stephen said, the any underlying disease should be controlled. For the diet as well, I don't as you said before, I don't impress or for the for low food map diet. Just as you said both, just to decrease the gas producing food. That's most of the things you, you can say about the lifestyle now. No, I, was, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just really looking at things to keep your bowel movements regular, underlying any, you know, if there's any underlying conditions addressing that. So if, you know, if you are struggling with constipation or chronic constipation for a long period of time, it's addressing that uh, and looking at all these lifestyle measures and even just dietary modifications that we can do and just finding something that's sustainable. I think that's the issue with a lot of people, nothing short term, but finding things that work with their reality. All right. Uh, as we come to a close of this episode, Stefan, I would love for you to share your three personal gut health habits. One thing which I'm doing is intermittent fasting. 
So um, I'm a, a big believer in doing intermittent fasting helps at least keeping your weight. Then the second thing which I'm doing is I love drinking buttermilk. I think it has a probiotic effect and I yeah. believe in the probiotic effect of buttermilk. And I like the taste. And the third thing is um, like starting the meal with the vegetables and the salad and then switching to, to the other ingredients of the food then lowers your insulin excretion. And this then gives you a lot of like pro, like beneficial health symptoms. And I think this those are the three things which I'm doing at the moment. At least. Which, oh, which, really uh, which milk, Sandra? Which milk is... Buttermilk. I don't think... Butter. No, buttermilk is... Buttermilk is um, is very common here in Europe. I don't think you've seen... You can see it actually, Dad. I've, I've seen buttermilk in Spinis, in the shelves <laughs> in Dubai. Yeah, yeah it's, I was going to say, at Spinneys, you can definitely find it there. No, but I mean, all these habits, Stefan, that you've mentioned are things that, you know, even just as dietitians, we've been trying to promote again with intermittent fasting. As I said, we, there's a lot of pros and cons to that. And same thing with you know, looking at your meal composition is also very, very important. But again, you know, once again, I really wanted to thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge when it comes to SIBO. And dad, again, thank you for being part of this as well. Next time, dad, you're here, I'll introduce you to Stefan in person. Yeah, definitely. All right. So either we go to the lake and have some rowing lessons or I will invite you to a glass of buttermilk. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Done. It's a date. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.